This is the third part in our series on, for lack of a better term, I'm not sure if it's the best term, but <clears throat> we've <clears throat> labeled it for a Christian worldview. You know. A worldview represents those most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about uh, the world that a person lives in. It reflects, um, to, to, to a worldview usually answers the big questions of life for people. How did I get here? Where did we come from? And so if you know, you've heard that the legends, the theology, I don't know what you want to call it, the folklore of many people groups says that a giant bird came and left us on this giant rock and our people grew from there. That's their worldview. That's how they got here. So a worldview does something like it, it talks about where you came from, why you're here, where you're going, if you believe you go someplace. It talks about the meaning and the purpose of life and the nature of the afterlife and what counts as a good, what constitutes a good life in this life. Few people really have thought through those issues in depth. Most of them have assumed them from friends on TV or the Big Bang. Great sources such as that. They've They've absorbed truth from those places and says that is the truth that rules my life and that's the stuff that helps me understand my world. Worse yet, they watch reality TV and pull that from there. And because so few people have thought through those issues and really know them for themselves, and that's us included in that to a large degree at times, Because of that, that's why the class that we're doing right now, the tactics class we're doing right now, is so really important. Because as we interact with others about what they believe, we're finding about what we believe as well. And when they say they believe this, and they said this is why we believe it, well, then you're like going, I believe something different. And I need to make sure I understand why I believe that. So it's really a great tool in understanding the worldview of others, and understanding our own worldview. <clears throat> and really, the, uh, the, bottom, the bottom, the end goal in that class and in those discussions is to help people to bring them to a place where they have to strongly, absolutely consider why they believe what they believe and how it influences their life. So when someone has a belief about these kind of things, it determines their stand on all kinds of matters of ethics and politics and of culture and of the do's and don'ts of life. All the issues that are facing our nation today are worldview issues. Global warming, the sovereignty of parents over their children, the sovereignty of us as individuals over our body. That's what women are saying about abortion laws. You're robbing me of the sovereignty of my choice over my body. Vaccinations, euthanasia, abortion, marriage, war, race, sexual identity, all those things are worldview issues. And we are still working through unresolved worldview issues from a hundred or more years ago in the context of the Civil War. What is the value of other people who are different than us? They can be owned. They're not human. And the ripples of that worldview still affect us today and are still being worked out. I wouldn't say they're being worked out. Let's just say they're still being discussed, argued about, protested, whatever it may be. 
those worldviews are still impacting us today. Our first two worldview positions, our first one was that we should live our life to the glory of God. That was our first one two weeks ago. That means that there's someone more important than you. That's what this worldview means. When it says that I'm going to live my life to the glory of God, it means that there's someone more important to me. That my life does not revolve around me. It has to revolve around somebody else. And if that's the case, you can see how that worldview begins to affect the way you live your life. It begins to affect the way that you make decisions and choices. And so there's someone else who's bigger than me, more important than me. Someone that my life should point to and reflect. And that I should be repointing to this person with my words, my thoughts, my actions. So my words, my thoughts, my actions should point to Christ. The second worldview was live our life as an ambassador of God. We did that one last week. We live our life in such a way that we represent a king who sent us to represent him in this world. We are not citizens of this world, right? We are citizens of another world. He has taken us out of the world. He has made us a citizen of, of, of heaven. And he has sent us back into the world to the relationships that we have around us each and every day. That's where he sent us. And we are representatives. We are ambassadors to those people and places. And we represent God's position on the issues and matters that come happen there. And our character should be one that reinforces his message. Today, our worldview position is to live our life as a steward of God. Now, a steward is not a word that we use very often. I, I think, when, unfortunately, I date myself with this. When I think of a steward, I think of love boat. And gopher, I think. Yeah, gopher. All right, great. We're an older audience here today, I can tell. And I think of stewards as men who wear short, white shorts. Wow, that's just wrong, isn't it? You've got to get that out of your mind. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, uh, Peggy, I want to make an appointment, please. Thank you. Um, he's going to pay for it, all right? Good. Thanks. All right. Yeah. And so, we want, and so a steward is not a word we're really used to. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the source that has unpacked it the most for me and helped me understand it is a little book called The Treasure Principle. It's by Randy Alcorn, and this dude has got it going on. And look, this book is small enough that even a graduate from a Texas high school can read it. That would be me and Steve, all right? And it is great. It is packed with, oh, and my brother too. Yeah, he's trying to figure out if he could actually do it. I'm not sure, all right? It is packed with great, great truths. And there are 30 copies of it. Um, uh, Bill, walk over there. That's Bill. He's not like Vanna at all. He's much uglier, but that's Bill. And, and those books right there, as you go out the door, there's 30 of them there. They're yours to take for free. It would be great if they were all gone at the end of the service. And we give them away because we believe they're, the, they're one of the best tools we could give you to equip you with a worldview around stewardship and finances and money. So take them all, all right? Um, and so he's done a great job of unpacking and explaining stewardship. And I've really been grateful for his ministry and for his work. We've done other things. He's done a good job with um, heaven and some other topics as well. And so steward is not this word that we're really used to. Think of it more as a manager. 
In Jesus' time, the steward was the manager of a household. The steward was not the owner of the assets. He wasn't the owner of the household, but he was responsible to manage it, to administrate all of the owner's properties that had been handed down to him. An example of that would be in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, where it is the parable of the talents. Here, the master's going to go away, and he entrusts, the text says, he entrusts his property to his managers, to his stewards there. And as the story unfolds, we learn how each of the three stewards are, are, are given money to manage. And for instance, now then, when we hear a talent, we have no way of knowing what that is. I mean, when we hear talent, we think, oh, they could all three sing, and that's how they're going to manage the campus or manage the property with their great skills of singing, talents, or dancing. You know, it's not that. A talent was the largest measure of currency at that time. And it amounted up to approximately 75 pounds of gold or silver. And it would be equivalent to about $6,000. In, in our story here, one man is given five talents. So in, in today's equivalency, that roughly $30,000 would make him, in, he would put him in like Bill Gates' stratosphere. Very, very wealthy. So here is a man who is very, very wealthy, and he was handing the control and the management of his assets to others. And two of them increased their trust. And the third one, though, he breaks, he, he breaks the trust of his master by not doing so. There's much we can take away from this parable, but one thing is certain that we learn from this parable, and that's that stewards are accountable for managing the assets of another. Right off the bat, those two things. The role of a steward is to manage what, he belo- what, he, what has been given to him. The other is that they are accountable for how they manage it. This is not the only parable dealing with stewardship and money either. Eleven of the 39 parables that Christ used to teach and that we take as really strong instruction on our life, eleven of the 39 deal with money or wealth. And in this parable, we know that everyone did not have the same amount of wealth to care for. One had five, the others had two. So note to self, all of us will be held accountable for what we have, not just the rich and the wealthy. Most of us don't consider ourselves as wealthy. That's not the kind of church crossing is. We are just an awful lot of regular folk. Some of us are more regular than the rest. That's who we are. That's who our family is. Having said that, most regular folk think, well, those rich folk, they got all that going on. Most regular folk think, oh, those rich people, they got a lot of responsibility. They need to be taken care of. You know, most, most, you know a few years ago, we had this thing where a lot of regular folk were in the streets protesting the 1%. Let me just share a little something with you. In the context of world value, in the context of world wealth, the, the median income in the United States is $55,600. You take that number and you put it in the context of world income, all of you in this room are in the top 1% of wealthy people in the world. So it's an unfortunate thing when you realize you are them isn't it? We are the 1%. 
So, it's not the rich who are accountable. It was the guy who got five talents, and it was the guy who got two talents. They were both equally accountable. So whether you sit here today and your talents amass to a great many, a stack of 75 pounds of talents, or your talents are a portion of talents, whatever you have in your pocket, in your bank account, under your mattress, in your backyard, in a little cookie tin, buried, whatever you have, you're accountable for that. You can't point to anyone else and say, they have so much more. They're really more accountable. You're still accountable. There's no way to reflect accountability onto other people, which is something we do a lot now in court every single week. Someone else was accountable for the things that happened to me or that I did. It was the Twinkies I ate. It was the person who made the cigarette, who made the gun, who made the car. Accountability, blame shifting is a big deal. It's a very wealthy industry. You cannot do that with the judge of the universe. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He is perfectly just. And he will make each of us perfectly accountable. We can't fool ourselves to think that I don't make enough to be accountable. There are no passes. All of us are stewards. Remember the verse we opened up the, the service with, Psalms 24. Psalms 24, 1 says, The world and all that is in it belong to the Lord. The earth and all who live on it are His. If you make something, you own it. And if you own something, you control it. And He made this place, He made this world, and He made you and I, and so therefore we are accountable to Him. Each and every one of us. We are accountable because he expects us to be responsible with what he has entrusted to us. 1 Corinthians 4.2, in that passage there, he's talking about accountability to the gospel. But he just makes a statement that applies outside of that context. And says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So it would be very easy if you would take that verse up there, you know. And you could write that little verse out and you say, moreover, it is required of me that I be found faithful because all of us are stewards. So we need to realize that we will all be accountable for whatever it is we have. Now, because I'm talking about money, I'm sure that I've lost some of you already. You've already switched me off because I'm doing what preachers and churches do. Because all we're after is your money. All we're after is to get what you got because we want it. That's the reputation we have. Some people have earned that reputation. I cannot tell you the last time I spoke about money and giving was. I do not know when it was. It was not in 2017. It might not have been in 2016. So I'm just going to defend myself a little bit and say you can't throw me or this church in that category. John Ashton talked about giving in September, and I'm doing it today, and those are the two times we've talked about it from this pulpit this year. In contrast, the Lord spoke about it all the time. All the time. 
So I encourage you not to throw me or crossing into the same categories as others who might focus on money and getting it from you. My goal is not to get you to give more money to this church. That is not my goal at all. If that was the goal, we'd pass a plate. I'd dump all those crackers out and just start passing that plate around here right now. It would be. And every time money gets tight, some of y'all go, we ought to pass a plate. Well, we've had many years of being flush and never passed a plate. If I was here to get your money, if this church was here to get your money, every single, at the first of the year, there'd be a little stack of boxes back there, and it'd be your offering envelopes. Because we want you to put that on your dresser and remember to bring your money every single Sunday. And we want you to look in that little box and see those envelopes you didn't fill out and fill them up and bring them too. We'd be doing that, but we don't do that. If we were here to get your money every single Sunday, when we do family prayer, we'd go, Dear God, please make sure that all these people are responsible to you and accountable to you for all the money that they owe you and make sure they put it in our offering box here today. Amen. But we don't do that either. Instead, we believe that your giving is strictly between you and God. And to that end, Bill, go back over there again. You are Vanna today. Right there, stop right there. No, right there, right there, stop. Right there where Bill's at and that little wooden box, that box is what you and the Lord are dealing with each other about. Or your bill pay system with your local bank. But that's what we do for giving here at this church. There's a box back there. And as God is working in your life, And as God is bringing you to a place where he says, this is what I want from you, it's between you and God to get something in that box. As you are maturing in him and obeying him, that's where it goes. I don't know anything about that. I don't know who gives and who doesn't give. That's between you and the Lord only. We believe that that giving thing is strictly between you and God and that your relationship with him should spur you to give and to do so as generously and sacrificially as he leads you to do so, not because I asked you to. Because you don't answer to me or to the elders of this church. You answer to him. We never want you to think that anything we do here would cause you to give. We want to be able to say that God moved his people to give and meet our needs so that he gets the glory. Not because we did it. Not because we had clever systems. And it's not wrong to do all those things. It's perfectly fine to do those things. It's not what we do here. Let me unpack this a little further for you. And this is how it works here at Crossing. We have as many as 20. Some of you heard me say this. I know, I know. Bear with me. We have as many as 20 or so community groups or people, organizations, who use our campus during the course regularly. I don't know, it's a week, a month, year. And we probably, I don't know this for certain, but we are one of the few churches who probably allow those groups to use our church at no cost. They all get to use our church at no cost. We never charge them anything for our church. We allow them to use the campus for free. It's a gift that we give back to our community and to the organizations that are part of our community. It's how we serve our community. It's what we can do. There's not a community center in Newtown where people can go and have Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and play practices and 
quilting clubs or whatever the case may be. There's not a place like that in Newtown. And that's not what we are, but we serve that capacity. We serve that need for some organizations. Several years ago, we sat down and I, we almost yielded to the cry to charge all these people for using the campus. So we sat down, we had our proposed fees, and then we looked at the actual gifts that these groups gave us, and we found out that when those groups gave us some kind of gift, that they usually gave us what we were going to ask for or more than we would have asked for. So we didn't do it. We scrapped that, all that work on fees and filed it away in the round filing cabinet and said, we're not going to ask them. We're going to let God meet our needs through people who use our campus in his own way. I'm not sure if this is this year or last year, Carl will tell me, but that number was over $7,000 this year so far. That they gave, not because we asked for it, not because we gave them a fee schedule, not because we gave them a suggested gift, you know, but because God worked to move them to give. I would want to say that that's how we meet our budget every year. Not because we talked about it every month, not because you had giving envelopes, not because you got an email, not because we cast a plate, not because we did anything, but because God was at work in his people's lives and they, and they loved him and obeyed him so fully and believed so much in what was happening around them that they wanted to give out of love and allegiance to him, not to this church. This was their vehicle for doing that. So that one day, when we've met that budget, and we still meet all of our obligations, all of what we're in, behind in that budget, so that when we have met that budget, we say, it's not us, Lord. It is not us, but it is you who have taken care of our needs. It is you, and to you be the glory. A moment ago, John mentioned this, and he says, you know, at one time two months ago, we were behind in the budget about $52,000. That's a chunk of change in my world. I don't know about yours. But we mentioned that we were struggling with finances and giving a couple months ago. Since then, that gap has gone from $52,700 to $33,500 because of God meeting needs. That's worthy of thanking him. That's worthy of giving him glory. That's worthy of you thinking, I'm obeying God and he's meeting our needs because of my obedience. And I just want to thank you for giving and to give in to God and making that happen. So, no matter how little we have, God expects us to give and to be good stewards. The widow of Luke 21, she gave very little, but she gave very much of what she had. The fishes and loaves of John 6 were not very much in light of the great need of the thousands around them. But Jesus took what was offered and met all the need was there. We do not look at how little we have. Look at what a great God we have who could do something with it. That ought to be exciting. That ought to be exciting. And there are people in this room who have those stories. I mean, I would even say that when Betty and I, we went from a Council Rock salary 18 years with all the credits and everything, and my salary, we adopted one boy, and we said, okay, we're going to leave her at home. And we gave up all that, and we thought, I don't know how this is going to work, and God has continued to be faithful. God has continued to be faithful. 
And that's just one story. There's many of those stories in this room. But let's expand on the discussion. We're not just stewards of money. We are stewards of all we have because it's all his and he has entrusted it to us to maximize his kingdom. If he gave it to you, he intends you to use it to bring glory to him, to point people towards him, to invest wherever he gave you, to invest what he's given you into eternity. So what do you have? What has God given you? And most of us, first thing we say is not much. And God asked Moses in, 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 in Exodus 4, what is that in your hand? And it was a stick. It was a rod. And God used that for, to proclaim freedom to a nation in slavery. God took the fish and the loaves to feed thousands. David took what he had in his hand, a sling, and he became a champion among his people. What is there in your life that God is saying, what is that in your hand because I want you to be a good steward of that. What is there that you have? Do you have a home? Do you have time? Do you have talent? It's God's. Do you have a skill? It's God's. Do you have a home? It's God's. You want me to keep that up? A car? It's God's. A business? It's God's. But finally, let's go to this other place. Do you have an experience? Because God wants to use it. He used the wandering of Abraham, the imprisonment of Joseph, and the hard work and the ridicule of Noah, and finally the humility and the willing death of Jesus. He used all those experiences to bring salvation to untold millions of people. What do you have that God wants to give to you? What, have you? what do you have that God wants you to give to him? What experience do you need to be a good steward of? An addiction? A divorce? A disease? Pause right there. Again, Brubaker, Scott Brubaker was a great steward of his cancer. Do you get that? He was a steward of the cancer. God says, I'm going to give you really terrible headaches, and it's going to be brain cancer. And then Scott said, what am I going to do with what you've given me? And we prayed, and we prayed over him together as a family. The elders anointed him with oil, and we prayed over him there. And we continued to pray. And you as a church met their needs. You fed them. You drove them. You cared for them. You cleaned up after them. Whatever it was they needed, you were doing that for them. And then there came a day when they said, you're cancer-free. And then there came a day when over 100 fellow employees from the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection came here. Not really sure why, but they knew something important had happened to this guy that they worked with. And we told him about Jesus and how Jesus had healed him. Brubaker stewarded very well his brain cancer. What do you have? Did you have an abortion? Did you have a pregnancy out of wedlock? Have you ever been unfaithful to a spouse? Do you ever have sex outside of a marriage? 
Have you been unemployed? Did you have a business fail? Do you have a mental illness? Do you have a disability? Do you have a porn issue? Do you have an issue with anger, with jealousy, with gossip? You fill in the blank. You put your issue in that blank, and I'll tell you that God wants you to be a good steward of that and allow him to, rot, to cleanse you of that and multiply his goodness in your life for his glory. Everyone is a steward of something. There are so many stories of lives that are being redeemed in this church right now. God is at work doing all these crazy little things that no one ever saw coming that one of these days we'll all get to hear about as he continues to make those experiences into something beautiful. But let's flip the coin. Do you have a successful business? Have you never been addicted? Have you never had any of those issues? Do you have a career, a great career, or a good marriage? Just even a good marriage is saying a lot to a lot of people around you because they don't even have that. Do you have good kids? Do you have good health? Whatever is in your hand, God wants you to be a good steward of it and maximize its value many times over to multiply it. The problem with the steward that took the two and buried it was that he didn't multiply it. It's not enough to just turn around and give him back. Hey, you gave me cancer. I'll give it back to you. Here it is, you know. He says, no, multiply anything I've given you like an investor. Invest it so more comes back from it. You see, when we look at stewardship from the big picture, there are no poor people in this room. You see, there is no one in this room who has nothing to give. We all have something that we are stewards of. We have an experience, we have a skill, we have a talent, we have money. And in God's economy, we are all filthy rich. Our last name is Gates in God's economy. We have so much he's given us to use for his plan and for the good of others. All that you have, everything that you have, ultimately, whether it's pain or pleasure, God has given it to you to ultimately help others, to bless them, to encourage them, to point them to Jesus. All of us have been gifted. All of us have been entrusted. All of us are accountable.